Hi, this is Arielle Jack, Student Ministries Director here at New Life Church. Thank you for joining our podcast today. I pray the following presentation encourages, challenges, and inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy the message. Open to James chapter 5. We are in our last week of the book of James. After this week, you have studied through the entire book of James. We have read every single word. It's pretty cool. Those of you who are involved in our John book of John study on Wednesday night, by the end of the fall, you have studied through, studied through, not just read through, studied through two whole books of the Bible, James and the Gospel of John. That's a cool thought. That's a, that's a good thing. We need to be studying through the Bible. Now, I would be remiss to say that if I, I'm not super excited about next series, the Wisdom Pyramid. If I had a graphic, I, I didn't put it up, but that's okay. Don't worry about it. Uh, the Wisdom Pyramid. And, man, we are going to turn that thing upside down. It's going to be awesome. Please uh, bring people out to that. That one's going to hit home like um, it's very, let's put it this way, it's very now. It's something that we need right now. All right. So we're in James chapter 5. And the uh, title of today's message, if I can get it open, yeah. The title of today's message is In It, In It, Together. In It, Together. The big idea is the Lord meets the needs of his people through the body of Christ. So another way we could say is the Lord meets the needs of his people through his people. It's, it's in, many ways we, we, in many ways, we look for these miracles that, are, that God can do, and God does miracles. We're going to talk about that today. But I, wanted to, I want you to understand today that most miracles that we experience are the miracles of you, the miracles of us. Jesus said very clearly, if you tell somebody, go, be blessed when they have need, and you don't do something to be a miracle in their lives, your religion is phony. We need to be about being a miracle in somebody's life. God uses his people to minister to his people. Okay? So James chapter 5, we're going to read verses Uh, 1 through 12 to start, and then we'll break some things down. Here we go. Come now, you rich people. I know that everybody in here is like, he's talking to me. And I could say right now, in fact, he is. You live in a very blessed place. You are rich. I don't know if we always realize it, because we have this... Has everybody read the Dr. Seuss book, Gertrude McFuzz? Everybody heard that book? If Ari were in here today, she'd know exactly what I'm talking about. We, were talk- we read Gertrude McFuzz last night. A great one. Next to Yertle the Turtle, it's one of my favorites. And Gertrude McFuzz is a, par- is a parable about this bird who has one little tiny nubby tail feather. But her friend, Lola Lilu, has two beautiful feathers, and she wants feathers like that, like Lola. So she finds a way. Her uncle is a doctor, a bird doctor, and he says, if you go up onto the top of the hill and eat some kind of berry off of a bush, I can't remember the Dr. Susie name for it, but it'll help you grow more tail feathers. So she goes up and she eats the berry, and boom. She's got two beautiful feathers like Lola Lilu. 
and she thinks, I am so blessed. I, I got what I needed. No, she's American. And she says, if I, eat, if I ate one berry and I got these tail feathers, imagine if I ate two. Do you see what I'm talking about? We are blessed and we are wealthy, but it's never enough. So all of you, I only read like three sentences, in, three words in this chapter. We're already preaching. Can you, can you, can you feel it today? I'm on today. I want to preach. So you, it's talking to you, Gertrude McFuzz. Be content with your tail. <laughs> We're never going to get through this. Okay. Now come, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Ooh, whoa. Your wealth has rotted, and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their uh, corrosion will be, the, uh, be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Oh. This is what he's saying. Why? Why? Here we go. We'll keep going. You have stored up treasures in the last day. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Imagine the guy who accumulates riches beyond belief, and the next day Jesus comes back and it's all, it's, it's, it's going to testify against him, right? Because it's pointless. You spent your whole existence putting your life out into, making this life more important than anything else, and then once you attain it, you meet the Lord and it didn't make a difference at all. It, didn't, it had no value. Look. Verse 4. The pay that you withhold from the workers who mowed your fields cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous who does not resist you? All right. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord comes. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord is coming. The Lord's coming is near. Strengthen your hearts, for the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as examples of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessing those who have endured. You've heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Push pause right there. Okay? Keep that, book, keep that chapter open because we're going to go back to it. We're going to finish it up. But I want to expound a couple things. See, the first few verses of chapter 5 are about living in the world but with kingdom principles. Living in the world but not being like the world. Living in the world but not worshiping the God of this world, 
we have no alternative. We are born into this world. The only choice we have is whether we will be in it or of it. When it comes to wealth and status and the acquisition of things, we need to see them for what they are, things. They're just things that are worthless in God's economy unless they are used to further his kingdom. Okay? Well, Pastor, what are you saying? You're saying I can't have nice things? No. Yeah. My, my question is this. How many nice things? When is it enough? What do you do in order, in order to attain those nice things? What measure of worldly behavior are you willing to engage in in order to accumulate? You ever watch the show Hoarders? Gross. Things become idols. What do the God's words say? They worship the creation rather than the creator. And God gave them up to a abased heart because they were worshiping the creation, not the creator. We cannot set our hearts upon them or they become idols to us. Furthermore, we must not treat people poorly in an effort towards worldly achievement. Remember what it says? You're, you're, the, the people in your fields who mow the, mow the crops down, the fact that you pinch their wages is calling out against you. Are you willing to go to dishonest means in order to elevate yourself? How do you treat people? Are people just stepping stools towards your attaining more? Because he says, if we do that, we will be judged. Matthew 6, 19 says this, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. It's almost exactly the same as, as James is talking about. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moths nor rust destroy or thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But what does that mean? How do I store up treasures in heaven? What is, what is something that is valuable in heaven? If the streets are made of gold, how do I weigh that? Well, I always like to go back to the, the, the uh, inter, interaction that Jesus had with um, somebody who was talking about taxes. Should it be paid taxes to Caesar? Why do I go back to him? Because that's one time Jesus dealt with monetary wealth like very distinctly. And he said, show me a coin, a denarii. And he gave him a coin. He said, whose image is on this thing? Remember, all, they're just things, right? Just metal. Whose image is on this thing? He said, oh, Caesar's. Like, you don't know that? Hello? He said, Caesar's. Said, okay. Well, give Caesar's things to Caesar. Give the stuff that has Caesar's image that he thinks is so valuable, give that back to Caesar. But give to God what belongs to God. And we all know 
that the only thing stamped with the image of God is people. That's how we gain treasure in heaven. That is what's valuable in heaven. It's the thing that Jesus, God stamped his image upon. It's people. You want to be wealthy in heaven? Have everybody you know there with you. Give up the idol of stuff and start working towards the goal of money bins in heaven, like Scrooge McDuck in heaven. Except you'd be swimming through people. That's weird. Okay. The analogy broke down. That's what God values. If, if, if streets are gold, there's got to be some other valuable thing. And it's people. Tell, tell my kids, I want you there. Above all else, I want you there. Heaven's not going to be heaven like it's supposed to be if you're not there with me. I want you there. And as a pastor, I, feel, I kind of feel the same way about you guys. Be there. And we all have our circle of people that God views as eternally valuable, so much so that he gave everything that he had in order to purchase the price for their salvation, who are we to not extend that grace to them? All right, moving on. Verse 7 to 12 are meant to remind us that this world is not everything. Lift up your eyes. We must patiently and expectantly look for the coming of Christ. We can get so bogged down looking down. But when we look up and we look for the coming of Christ, it starts changing our perspectives on on situations, on circumstances, on people. living our life as, Jesus, as if Jesus is coming back at any moment, interacting with each other as if Jesus is in the room, because he is, especially if you're in the room. If you're in the room, Jesus is in the room. Why? Because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So we live our lives as if Jesus, in, we talk to people as if Jesus is in the room. That's a good reminder, isn't it? I could use that reminder sometimes, interacting with people. As if Jesus is in the room. I mean, all right, let's, 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 just, let's just strip away the super spirituality of the whole thing and let's just get down to brass tacks. If you were in a conversation between yourself, somebody else, and Jesus was in the booth with you, what would your language be like? I bet you wouldn't use his name as a curse word. I bet there would be no curse words. I bet you'd be on your best behavior. I know I would be. I know that if Jesus is in the booth with me, I would be much more gracious to the person sitting across from me. I'd be more patient. Aren't we sick? He's in the booth with you. He is there with you. He's there. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We've got to remember these things. When we start looking, lifting our eyes to perspective of, of eternity, being in any moment, and Jesus being present and, and imminent in our lives, 
it starts changing how we think about things, how we look at things, how we talk to people. Being gracious and patient with the world around us in order to win some to Christ. Isn't that the goal? Because they're the treasure. They're what's valuable. Ephesians 5, 15 through 16 says, Pay careful attention, then, to how you walk. Not as unwise people, but as wise. Maybe as if Jesus were in the room. Making the most of the time because the days are evil. Wait a minute. Days are evil? Guys, the days are going to be evil till Christ comes back. Just get used to it. Well, back in the day, bull. I don't believe it. We all have these ideas of back in the day. It was so much better. No, it wasn't. You were as stressed out then as you are now. But back in the day, I know, some things were different. But sin is sin. People are people. <sighs> the days are evil. So it's, it's not a matter of whether the days are evil. God said it is. It's how we use our time. It's how we treat people. It's how we look at the world. It's how we position ourselves in the world, not being of the world, but being in the world. James references the prophets that have gone before us as examples of patience with a wayward world. Think about all the prophets. What were they constantly doing? Repent. Kingdom of God is near. Repent. This evil generation. It's always been that way. The prophets have been saying the same thing. We, you are the prophets of today. His example, he uses the example of Job, right? One who endured much hardship and frustration within his circumstances, yet in the end, reaped great rewards. Why was he rewarded? He kept his faith. He remained in communion with God, and he wouldn't curse God, but went to him with his situations. He wasn't happy with God, but he wouldn't curse God. He went to God with his situations. And God said, oh, Job, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't realize you were upset. Job, let me explain to you every reason why I do what I, I do. Let me let you in on the infinite knowledge of God. No, he said, Job, did you create a donkey? Job's like, no. Well, when you create a donkey, you come talk to me. That's what he said, basically. Consider the goat on the hill. Do you feed the goat in the hill? No. Well, when you start feeding goats in the hill, come talk to me. I'm God. Deal with it. I'm God. Now, we don't want to hear that sometimes. Because God is good. God owes us so much.
God's God. James 13, here we go, 5.13. Now we'll start with 12. I didn't, we didn't read until 12, did we? Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment. Wouldn't that be great if our society stopped taking oaths or writing contracts that are longer than the Constitution of the United States. I don't think any document should be longer than the Constitution of the United States. That's what I think. If they can, if they can establish a country in that many pages, I don't think, you know, buying a house should be, <laughs> be more than that. But I'm saying, your, yeah, imagine if our politicians... Let their yes be yes and their no be no. You might not vote for them. Just saying. And we like to pick on the politicians, don't we? But what if we did the same thing? What if we, when he told our children something, we actually meant it, and it wasn't just for them? You ever, ever, ever uh, tell your child to do something, and you're like, when you get older, you'll be able to do that, but right now you can't. Why? Is it wrong or is it Right. If they shouldn't be doing it, probably you shouldn't be doing it either. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Okay, now, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Pause. There's a question mark there. Just think about it. Is any of you, any among you suffering? Know why the question is out there? Because it begs us to find the answer. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what he's going to say about it. Because I've had my moments of suffering. What's coming up? He should pray. That's it? That's all? Is anyone suffering? Pray. That's, okay, that's sad. That's super sad that that's how we feel about prayer. Is anyone of you suffering? Pray. Oh, that's it? That's it? You know what prayer is? Prayer is communicating with the God of the universe. That should be enough. Why do we not think of prayer as, a, as the thing that it actually is? Because we pray, the Bible says, because we pray according to our own lusts. We pray based on worldly prerogatives. We don't have the mind of God. But if we pray and have the mind of God, it's it's enough. It's way more than enough. Okay, next one. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. So when you are suffering, you go to God. When you're cheerful, guess what? You go to God. See how we can live in this world yet be God-centric? In every circumstance? Look at this one. Is any among you sick? Question mark. He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So when you're sick, you you go to God. And you get other people to go to God with you and for you. See how it's all God-centric? And this is what, prayer does. You ready? 
and the prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that, the, that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then when he prayed again, the sky gave rain and the land produced its fruit. All right, let's talk about that for a second. Verse 30, 13 through 15 give examples of specific needs in the community and how they are to be met by, the, by uh, those experiencing them. James gives a stark contrast between suffering and cheerfulness, showing us that there's always a proper response to life's circumstances, whether good or bad. And what is that response? Go to God. Go to God. Go to God. James shows us that we, as believers, can feel confident in the fact that our specific needs can be met and dealt with, with God. Sometimes, this, this happens a lot. Sometimes in life, we categorize our issues and our circumstances as not important enough for God or even our community's concern. I don't want to bother him with that. I don't want to bother the pastor with that. I don't want to bother my, my Christian friend with that. I don't want to bother them. It's not that big of a deal. The Bible says no matter what, whether you're rejoicing or suffering, go to God with it. And then it, says if you, then it gives us the idea of like confess to one another, be in community, talk to one another. It, it, it's all about God meeting the needs of his people through his people. In fact, most of the miracles that we see will be handed out through the people of God. That's what the church is for. That's what, that's what it was made, to, to bring the gospel to the, to the world and to minister to the body. When Jesus, uh, when, when, when the uh, New Testament talks about it, it talks about the, the church as a body, right? If you're, everybody ever smashed their thumb with a hammer? Oh, the other day, man, I was doing just a stupid thing. I was doing help fixing something in the house, and I was holding a piece of wood, and like a total idiot, I was, had my drill, and I was screwing this piece in to get it started so that I could put it on, and, and I put the screw right into my finger. Thank you. So deep that I had to unscrew it out of my hand. <laughs> Moron. <laughs> I'm telling you what, it went into my finger, but my whole body revolted because of it. I almost like lost my lunch because of Every part of my body reacted to this little tiny piece of metal in my finger. I'm thinking, should I go get a tetanus shot? <laughs> but the concept is this. When the smallest part of our body gets injured, the whole body rushes, rushes to alert 
the brain, the head, that something's wrong. Imagine if you didn't feel pain. Mm, straight through. Oh, got a big old screw in my finger. But as soon as it went in, man, my whole body said, stop! Stop! The whole body told my brain, stop. Because something was going wrong here. Everything in me said, shouted to my brain, stop. That's what we do. We are the body of Christ. When one part of the body is injured, we all come along and we pray together to the, to the head and say, help this. Let's help this stop. Let's, let's restore. Let's heal. And you know what happens? The body is so amazing. In two weeks, I got callus here. It's all healed up. I didn't even do anything. I put a little Band-Aid on it. You know Band-Aids are the universal healer? Your kids know it. Why don't you know it? I mean... I could have like an ankle like pointing the other direction. Oh, let's throw a Band-Aid on. It'll be fine in a day. Band-Aids are amazing. They're, they're miracles. But in, in just a couple of weeks, it's, only, it's, like, it's just a little callus now because the body heals in miraculous ways. God has made it to do that. The body's amazing. Our physical bodies are amazing. But the church is supposed to be the same type of an entity that in a few weeks, it may take longer than that, but in a while, those things are healed because the body has engaged the head. And sent the proper parts, proper uh, things to the, I don't even know how the body works. But anyway, stuff went to the finger to heal it. Right? That's the stuff. The glue in my body. I don't know. That's what the body's supposed to do. We are community. And it's a miracle. It's a miracle. So don't ever feel like your, your little issue is not important. It's important to God. It's important. It should be important to us. So much has been made about verse 15 over the millennia, right? It's, 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 a, it's an interesting verse. Some have taken it very literally as being the, whenever someone's sick, whenever someone is sick, and this particular ritual is performed, that the sick person should be completely healed every time. Like it's like a ritual thing that if the elders come and they anoint oil on, it's very almost like spell-like. Others have gone down the completely different path saying that this is James's prescription for the person's last rites, like a Catholic last rites. And that any, uh, only means that because they have gone through this ritual, they can be assured that they will die and go to heaven. Anoint them and prayer of faith will save the sick and God will raise them up. In the last day. I believe James has a larger point here. If read in the context with the surrounding verses, is that Christians should not suffer in private. We should pray, yes, but we should also get others to pray for us. You don't need to suffer in private. You are part of a body. You are part of a family. You're part of a people. We should pray, we should ask others to pray, and we should expect God to answer. I believe that we underestimate the power of prayer. We underestimate it. We look at it as kind of like a 
talisman or as a magic thing. Like we're just, we say the thing and somehow something is going to happen. No, prayer is this opportunity we have to speak to the head of the body. And, and he, he wants to heal his body. Do you understand this? Nobody is like, oh, man, I got, you know, an injury. It's okay. We'll just let it be. If we lose that hand, bah. No. The brain always wants to fix the body. The brain wants to heal. The brain wants to restore. The brain wants to help. We have to think about God that way. He wants to. He wants to be there for you. He wants to answer. Prayer is our opportunity to do that. When we pray, we are utilizing the gift God gave us of intimate communication with him. Thus, whenever we pray, it is effective because we know he hears us. We know he hears us. We as Christians must become comfortable with vulnerability and accountability. James commands us to confess our trespasses one to another. Confessing amongst our brothers and sisters uh, as we pray for each other is a major goal of maintaining unity and love within the body of Christ. Mute, listen to this. Mutual confession, confession leads to mutual prayer. Mutual confession leads to mutual prayer. When you are vulnerable, be careful who you're vulnerable with. Make sure that they're actually somebody who's part of the body and on your side. But when you are vulnerable with somebody, when you tell them even the things that you think, oh, it's not a big deal, it is a big deal. Talk to them. Because then now, if you told me what's really going on, now my prayers are in, in sync with you, and I can pray effectively to the head, to God. We're, we're coming together as a family. The prayer of faith is not express, exp, uh, exclusively for the elders of the church, but is shared responsibility among members of the church. Believers are to intercede for one another, both in the greatest matters of the human uh, repentance. We're supposed to pray with people. We're supposed to lead people to Jesus. Did you know that? Did you know that as a member of the church, it is your responsibility and, and uh, pleasure to lead people to Christ. That's, that's the greatest miracle ever accomplished is somebody sharing the gospel with them and that person going, you know what? I'm in. Can you pray with me? There's nothing, there's nothing better. There's nothing better on the face of the earth than somebody saying, I hear what you're saying. The Holy Spirit, something's that they probably don't even know how to identify the Holy Spirit at that point. But something, I, I, I get it. I'm in. Would you pray with me? And you get to lead that person to the throne of grace. It's, a, it's, it's the greatest thing ever. It's intimidating, though. It's not. You got to put yourself out there. So that we're supposed to uh, pray with one another, intercede for one another for the greatest matter of human repentance that brings salvation, and also in the great matters of physical, emotional, psychological, and relational healing. We are called to do that. 
to pray for one another. James also says that the fervent prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I was reading this passage this week, and I'm like, man, what does that even mean? I was like meditating. What does that even mean? Because I go back to Romans 3, 12, uh, 10 and 12 says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Ah, dang. <laughs> then apparently our prayers are not very effective because there's no one righteous. You're not righteous. It's not about you. That's why God used, uh, why James used the example of Elijah. Elijah. Now, in the King James, which way I remember it, uh, memorized it, it says it this way, and I like it better. It says, Elisha was a man subject to like passions as we are. In your, in, uh, your translation, it might say, was a lot like you. Just, in every way, just like you. He was normal like you. He had passions have you ever re- anybody ever read through the stories of Elijah? The guy was a mess. Most psychologists believe he had some kind of like chronic depression because he was up and down. He might have been bipolar. The guy was up and down. He was all over the place. One minute he's like cheering on the fact that God had worked through him, and the next minute he goes, "Just let me die. Let me die." God had just done a miracle, rained down fire from heaven. He just judged all of the prophets of Baal. And then one little lady, creepy as she was, Jezebel, says, we got to kill this guy. And he's like, she's after me, God. Just let me die. What planet are you on, man? And then we go, oh, yeah, that's how I am, too. I'm up and down, too. I have my downs and I have my highs, and, I, and, I, and I'm not completely stable in all of my ways. That's why James says this, just like Elijah, who was that guy, he prayed, he prayed, he prayed that it might not rain for, and it didn't rain on the land for three years and six months. And then he, rained, and then he prayed again and it rained. So what he's saying is this, the, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Our righteousness is not in who we are. It's in the blood of Jesus Christ that covers our iniquities, and now we are made righteous before God, and we can go to him into the throne of grace. We can go into the holy of holies, and we can make petitions to our God because he doesn't see us as unrighteous. He sees us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Yeah, there is none righteous. No, not even one. But Jesus makes us right before God. And we can confidently go into the throne of grace and make petitions. And he will listen and he will hear. Prayer is is mighty not because of who we are, but because of who God is. We pray uh, believing not... And a formula of prayer, like a spell. People use prayer like a spell, I'm telling you. But in the, in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the only one in all of heaven and all of earth who can effect change and perform miracles. 
He's the only one. You're not righteous enough to do it. But in Christ, you can do all things. Whoa, that's a different way of looking at things. That's at a heavenly perspective. What this chapter says to me is that I'm very late. It's the last week. Hang in there. What this chapter says to me is that when we have a heavenly perspective while living in a corrupt world, we need to have a heavenly perspective while living in a corrupt world. If we do, we will be blessed in the doing. My brothers and sisters, if any of you are, are, uh, should stray from the truth, verse 19, and someone turns them back, let the person know that whoever turns a sinner from error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. There is no greater work to be done or activity to be involved in than that of the church of Jesus Christ. You, may, you can be an accountant and save somebody hundreds of dollars on their tax return. Yay! You could be an accountant and also part of the kingdom, and you could save somebody's soul for eternity. That's where it lies. That's where true success lies. The church is in the business of being people, bringing people from death to life. We are in the business of raising up children in the way they should go. We are in the business of plant, uh, patiently bringing the message of hope to the world that is in desperate need of hope. We are in the business of laying up treasures in heaven. I'm begging you, please, get involved in the greatest work of history. Get involved. You will be blessed in the doing. That's what James is about. I have to go or Ariel's going to kill me, Pastor Ariel. She's like, we've been done for five hours. Plus, I want cake. So let's pray. Pete, Jeanette, we love you. Thank you for all you've done for this church. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray that we would be blessed in the doing like you have talked to us throughout the book of James. God, that we would be active and moving, that we would live our lives in the world, not of the world, that we put kingdom principles above the success of this world, that we would build treasures in heaven. Lord, bless us as we seek to bless you. Lord, help us to be about the work of not only growing the body, but also healing the body, being a part of this great thing you've called the church in its mission and also in its care. Lord, help us to build something here that is impactful for our community, and that's going to take people who are sold out to you to come alongside and being blessed in the doing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.